Hello everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. Thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Don't forget to check me out on Instagram. My username is Law Lockdown. Check out my website, www.lockdownlaws.com. And finally, if you have the time, please give me a rating on Apple Podcast. Either way, thank you for listening, and I appreciate your support. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My guest today is Brian Dean Abramson. Brian is the author of the book, Vaccine, Vaccination, and Immunization Law, published by Bloomberg Law, And Brian is also now a professor at Florida International University College of Law, teaching vaccine law. Brian, thanks for joining me again today. It is absolutely my pleasure to be here. So let's get right into it because uh, this is a fascinating topic. Uh, Last time we spoke, I asked you about the origins of COVID-19. There's the lab leak theory versus the natural spread theory. Now that we've gotten a little bit more information and some time has passed, what are your thoughts on the origins of COVID? You know, I think I'm still not, I'm still skeptical about the idea that this is, that this is a lab leak. And I know that it has become um, more, more kind of popular for people to speculate about that. Um, But we've had uh, epidemics in, in this country and around the world for centuries uh, you know, in the past century, the Spanish flu and the swine flu and uh, H1N1 and SARS and so forth, uh, without ever having needed a lab leak to explain why those happened before. Um, I think it's an interesting hypothesis. Uh, I, I don't know how you would go about uh, proving it, particularly uh, when you're dealing with a, a country like China that is um, very closed and kind of secretive with respect to some of these operations. And, and, and I don't discount that it's a possibility, but I still don't consider it a probability. Um, I actually attended a lecture last year where one of the speakers pointed out that there are some 8,000 known identified species of coronaviridae, that's viruses in the, in the same family as coronavirus, um, that exist in the wild that have never been recorded as crossing over into the human population. Uh, and you know, we don't know what the effects of any of those would be if they did. Um, we do know from the past that uh, SARS and MERS, the Mideast Respiratory Syndrome, um, and a couple of others have uh, crossed over in the past. And you know, sometimes uh, these diseases come into the human population and have virtually no effect. And sometimes they turn out to be uh, very deadly for humans. Uh, in the case of, of mares, it had something like a 40% death rate. And that just the fact that it killed people at such a high rate prevented it from spreading. So it didn't get into a wider population. And I remember having thought at the time that, you know, if it was as contagious with a with a, a lower death rate than that, that it would have spread much farther. Um, so I'm I'm still um, you know I'm still fairly certain that it's plausible that 
a disease can originate from natural causes uh, that can have exactly the effect that we've seen uh, with COVID-19. Uh, you know, and it's, it's impossible to say that it wasn't some sort of a lab accident. Uh, you know, I certainly don't think it's something that was intentionally introduced uh, into, into the world or into the population by anyone. Uh, just seeing how kind of devastating and effective it has had everywhere that it has uh, been out. And, you know, there, you don't hear reports necessarily from China about what has the impact of COVID been in China. Uh, but it was, it was very serious there. You know, it's certainly not something that um, the Chinese government would have wanted to inflict upon themselves. Um, even at the even at the end was to inflict something on an enemy. Um, you don't really use viruses in that way. Uh, there are people who have tried to weaponize anthrax and so forth in the past, but for a, a virus that has a potential to really spread around the world and and bite back the the person who's putting it out there in the first place, it just doesn't make sense to use a virus like this in a weaponized form. Um, if it did come from a lab leak, that would have involved uh, a tremendous amount of carelessness and breaches of some very common sense and, and commonly practiced protocols of the security of uh, virological experimentation. Yeah, I agree with you. Definitely not intentional, uh, perhaps accidental. Did you get a chance to listen to John Stewart's rant on the Colbert show a few weeks ago? I did not. What did I miss? Oh, it was it was hilarious. Uh, but the points he made was that I think in late 2019, um, at this Wuhan lab that is studying the SARS coronavirus, some people got ill, and I think one of the workers' wives passed away. So just from a timing and a common sense perspective, uh, the lab leak seems plausible, but what do I know? It's it's interesting well, to think well, about. Yeah, well, we'll never know with certainty. Um, but you know, we can only, on the one hand, we can only weigh the probabilities, and on the other hand, um, you know, where where it originated is of sort of very little legal moment to okay. Well, how do we deal with the fact that this virus is out there? You know, if if tomorrow it were somehow revealed that oh yes, this was definitively a lab leak. I don't think that would change the way that we need to approach um, we need to approach the pandemic, or the way that uh, people and companies and governments are approaching it. Well said. So, um, just from a practical perspective, it doesn't make much difference in terms of how we how we fight the virus. Is that a fair point? Yeah, the virus is the virus, uh, no matter where it came from. Got it. Okay. Um, so the next question I have for you is, we're now seeing public agencies and governments mandating the vaccine, as well as with private companies. Um, but especially out here in California, the UC system is now mandating, uh, the University of California is mandating that students and faculty get the vaccine. Um, I think Governor Newsom in the last few days um, was mandating that state workers get the vaccine. Um, mm -hmm. Although he did, he was a bit more cautious where he said, you, you have the right, I think, to get tested every 72 hours in the alternative. 
My question to you is, though, what is the legal authority for these state mandates? Well, the legal authority for vaccination mandates goes back well over a century. Um, Vaccination was actually discovered as a process in 1796. Uh, a, an English physician named Edward Jenner kind of uh, developed the idea that if you intentionally gave people cowpox, that would protect them from getting smallpox. Um, his discovery was hailed as a tremendous uh, boon to the human population because smallpox at the time was um, really the scourge of humanity. It was, it was rolling through towns and killing one out of six people. Um, so you can imagine that in a circumstance like that, uh, and then it's something that's really unimaginable today if you had a disease that was actually killing that proportion of the population. Um, but from that point, there were efforts to mandate vaccination. Uh, and those kind of started in different places around the world and kind of ping pong back and forth where something would be done in one place and it would seem to be successful and it would be carried on in another place. Um, by the late 1800s, uh, most states in the United States had some authority uh, on the books for mandating vaccination, particularly in conditions where um, there was an outbreak of smallpox. And, and for the first 100, and 100 years and change, if you're talking about vaccination, you're only talking about smallpox. That was the only vaccine that existed um, until the turn of the century. But uh, there were state law court cases that challenged that. In fact, California uh, had one of the earliest. Um, they had a case, a bill versus, I think, a bill versus the state of California, challenging a vaccination mandate in the 1890s, where that was upheld as a legitimate uh, practice of the, the state's powers to protect public health. And then finally, this came to the United States Supreme Court as all things sort of eventually do, in 1905 in the case of Jacobson v. Massachusetts. Jacobson v. Massachusetts is an absolutely fascinating case. Um, You had this this fellow, Jacobson, who was being required to receive a vaccination. uh, And if he didn't receive the vaccination, he would have to pay a fine of $5, which would be, I think, the equivalent of about $500 today. And uh, he challenged the authority of the state to require that he be vaccinated. Uh, and pointed out that he had had a a bad reaction to smallpox vaccination a decade earlier. Um, He had a brother who had recently had a very bad reaction to smallpox vaccination, as sometimes people did. Um, When smallpox vaccination was initially invented, about one out of 16 people would die from the vaccination. And around the time of, uh, of Jacobson's suit, that number was still around one out of 100. And if you think about it, that's a lot more people dying from the smallpox vaccination than are actually dying from COVID now, proportionately. Um, But the Supreme Court said that this is something that is squarely within the police powers of the state to protect the health of the citizens. And uh, therefore, states do have a power to mandate vaccination. Uh, The case did not consider any kind of exemption. The court did note that if Jacobson was in genuine fear of his life and had um, sort of uh, expert testimony or, or, or some scientific basis for thinking that his life was actually threatened by this vaccine, that he might have a greater interest in being able to oppose vaccination. Um, but the court basically said that vaccination is a 
kind of fundamental example of the power of the state to impose uh, a law to require people to uh, protect the health of the community. And uh, the Supreme Court revisited the question one other time in the 1922 case of Zook v. King, in which the San Antonio School District had um, issued a law requiring all students attending the schools in San Antonio, whether they were public schools or private schools, to be vaccinated in order to attend the schools. And the Supreme Court said, uh, following Jacobson, this is sort of a lesser included thing. If you can mandate vaccination, then you can certainly condition access to uh, something like schooling on vaccination. Um, those two cases are kind of the final word from the Supreme Court uh, directly addressing vaccination, but the court has repeatedly kind of dipped into that well in later cases where they've been asked to decide whether the state can allow, for example, drug testing of students um, or require that uh, a person's feeding tube remain attached even when their family uh, wants it removed or something like that. The court has gone back to Jacobson and said, well, if you look at Jacobson, it's this baseline power of the state and this other thing that the state is trying to do is consistent with the, the, the structure of power that we've outlined in Jacobson. So the case is um, still very live law. It has been challenged a number of times on the fact that, you know, first of all, it's just a very old case. Um, it was decided before uh, a lot of rights under the uh, various amendments of the Constitution were incorporated to the states by the 14th Amendment. Um, it was decided before the court had set up these different levels of scrutiny. Um, in fact, just in the last week, a, a decision came out from the Northern District of Indiana, where the University of Indiana has required all students to be mandated, uh, very similar to the, to the California system. Um, and the court came out with a 101-page opinion that just very thoroughly addressed these issues and examined the history of Jacobson and whether it still is good law and concluded that yeah, Jacobson is still good, it's still live, rational review for uh, state laws mandating vaccination or ordinances or other directives like that, mandating vaccination still get that level of review. And uh, you know, as long as the state is able to show that uh, they've done their sort of due diligence in having actual experts um, meet and confer and, and look at the data and determine a policy path that, that's going to be upheld. Um, so that kind of gets into your question of, well, what about this, this situation with the University of California system? Um, and you know, I would say that if, if you can get a, a, a judge in the, the rather you know, more conservative Northern District of Indiana to say um, at great length that, yes, these, these mandates are permissible, um, that it's unlikely that it's going to be overturned in California. Um, one thing that the, the, the Northern, District, uh, Northern District of Illinois judge said, uh, which echoes also what the judge in the uh, Southern District of Texas in Bridges versus Houston Methodist, which is a recent case determining that employers in a hospital system could also require their employees to receive COVID vaccination. Um, one thing that they both pointed out is that there are exemptions for people who have uh, a medical basis for objecting to vaccination. And that medical basis is typically uh, what is contraindicated based on uh, what was found by the developers of the vaccine during their clinical trials. Um, and also um, 
both allow for religious exemptions. And in California, that's that's kind of that's kind of important because the state of California removed its religious exemptions for other vaccines, for the childhood vaccines, uh, a few years ago following the measles outbreak at Disneyland that was traced to a religious uh, group that was unvaccinated. Uh, and courts have generally held where that has been challenged and it has in a couple states in, in California and West Virginia, uh, that states are not required to have a religious exemption for vaccination. Um, the Supreme Court addressed this actually in the 1944 case, Prince v. Massachusetts. And the case was about um, parents who were having their children pass out flyers in the street and um, saying that, you know, this was part of their religious belief was that they had to have their, their children do this. This was in, in support of their um, religious organization. Uh, but the, the courts held that the Massachusetts laws prohibiting uh, certain aspects of child labor prohibited the parents from being able to do that, and the fact that they were doing so for a religious person for a religious purpose was not uh, kind of an out for that. And the Supreme Court went on um, at some length, a couple of paragraphs, talking about the fact that you can require children to be vaccinated even if their parents have a religious opposition to vaccination, um, and that is again kind of paradigmatic of the power of the state to uh, require something. Um, even over parental objections and even over religious objections. So, you know, even though that is dicta in the case, it has been widely cited by courts examining questions of religious exemptions uh, to find that there's no requirement that there be a religious exemption for public mandates. Uh, now, you also mentioned private mandates, and private mandates are a little bit different. You know, we talk about um, for example, this Houston Methodist case where they've mandated vaccination for the employees. Um, private mandates run into uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So the ADA says that you cannot discriminate against people on the basis of a disability and courts have held in the past that if you have uh, a physical inability to receive a vaccine uh, due to a contraindication or an allergy or in one case, even due to a severe anxiety connected to vaccination, um, that is a disability and employers have to respect that and accommodate that and try and find some way to allow you to continue working um, without being vaccinated. And under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, if you have a religious belief and your religious belief is opposed to vaccination, um, again, they have to accommodate you. The burden is slightly lower in terms of being able to fire someone who refuses to get vaccinated if the employer can say that it's just, it wouldn't be possible for me to accommodate them based on, on the work that they do. Um, but that's also very difficult to say right now because we just got out of a period of um, a year of kind of actual practice uh, when there was no vaccine available, where employers did have to take steps to make it possible for unvaccinated people uh, to work and carry out their jobs and had to be very innovative in that. Um, so we're at a position right now where in a lot of professions, it's very hard for an employer to say, well, I can't accommodate someone who doesn't want to be vaccinated because you just got done with a year of, of implementing structures for people who couldn't be vaccinated because there was no vaccine. Um, another aspect of this that I have personally found very fascinating lately 
and have uh, been looking at is the question of serological testing, uh, which is you test someone to see whether they actually have the antibodies for the disease. We do have an antibody test for COVID-19. There are a lot of open questions about whether antibodies developed from an actual exposure to COVID uh, or having one of these asymptomatic cases of COVID are as robust as the antibodies developed from vaccination uh, because your body does react a bit more strongly to things that are literally injected directly into a muscle and does to, to what is inhaled into the lungs. But we don't know that they're um, less effective and we don't know what the term is, the, the period of time over which they would be more or less effective. Um, so I have kind of a, a working theory that um, if someone has antibodies and they can demonstrate, well, I had COVID, I have the antibodies, they're still alive in my system, then you know, your focus on getting people vaccinated should be on people who don't have those antibodies because that's exactly what the vaccine is intended to do. It's intended to provoke the development of those antibodies. Um, and the outside of that, I think uh, theoretically you could make a case that the state does not have an interest in requiring vaccination of people who can show that they have a live and robust antibody response ongoing. Um, antibody testing can be done periodically. So you could test someone and say, well, you've got very anti very strong antibodies right now. We're going to test you again in a couple of months. And you know, maybe they'll be at the same strength or maybe they won't. Um, but people are being exposed to COVID um, who are you know, out and about um, to some degree, to the degree to which if you already have the antibodies in your system, that exposure is actually going to uh, continue to boost your body's determination to develop those antibodies. Um, and it's the same thing, whether you've been vaccinated or whether you have antibodies because you had, a, had COVID in the past, had an asymptomatic case of COVID in the past. Um, you know, I, I don't know whether I'm ready to say that it would be a due process violation to require vaccination of someone who could demonstrate that they had the antibodies. Um, but as more scientific evidence comes in, it might be uh, quite easier to say that at that point, the state is imposing on the individual a needless medical procedure because the procedure would just yield the result that uh, nature already has. Yeah, and there's other remedial measures you could take potentially. Do you know um, about this law in Indiana, if they allowed an opt-out to the vaccine, if you could, you know, wear the mask or get tested every 72 hours? Did that come up at all? Well, actually, the Indiana, the Indiana State University law um, was very specific about that, that, that if you are unvaccinated because you have received an exemption, either a medical exemption or a religious exemption, um, you still had to wear a mask and you still had to be tested on a regular basis. Uh, certainly not every 72 hours. I think every couple of weeks may have been the, the standard. And, the, and um, the testing was going to be like a saliva test rather than this kind of much more uncomfortable nasal swab test. Um, so to an extent, the court looked at it in terms of, well, is, it, is the masking requirement and the testing requirement a violation of religious freedom because you're telling people that even if you have a religious exemption from vaccination, um, you still have to have, you still have to take these other measures. Um, and if you don't want to take these other measures, then you're going to be excluded from school or required to take classes only remotely. Um, and for some students in, in, in some majors, um, 
it wouldn't be possible for them to graduate on their schedule. Uh, and the court upheld all of these things and said that, you know, that um, it's not a, a violation of any right, um, particularly where the masking is not premised on, on religious belief. Um, and also because a lot of the students had conceded, and they, there were eight students who, who had brought this case, had conceded that they had worn masks uh, other places where they were required to wear masks. So, you know, if it, it's kind of going to be hard to find a plaintiff who uh, has never worn a mask throughout the the uh, back the entire process of the pandemic, um, and is now in a position where they're seeking to kind of exercise some right where um, they would be required to wear a mask and 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 have to do that for the first time. And certainly, there are people who who uh, never you know kind of acceded to that requirement. Um, but it's a substantial minority of the population. And, you know, I don't know how many of them uh, are actually people who are going to be active university students right now, you know, starting or, or continuing a semester at that particular university. Um, but I think the, the court's decision, um, and this, this uh, the court itself noted, and this is also important, it's a decision denying a preliminary injunction uh, based on the finding that there's little likelihood of success on the merits. Um, so that could change as develop as information develops in the case. Um, I don't think it's likely. You know, when when um, the Houston Methodist uh, plaintiffs had filed their case and were opposing the vaccination under an EUA, I predicted very early on exactly how it would go. You know, this is what the court is is going to come out with. And a lot of people uh, thought, no, no, you're wrong. The, the, the court might go another direction. Um, and I wasn't wrong uh, because this is what I do. I know kind of this field of law and how things are, are likely to go in this field of law. Um, and you know, it's just kind of an interesting side note that the, the, the judge who decided the case in Houston Methodist was a Reagan appointed judge. The judge who decided the, uh, the case in the Indiana University matter uh, was a Trump appointed judge. So these are you know, by no means um, liberal judges, but um, they're certainly applying uh, the precedent and, and the history of the law uh, kind of in a way that says that, yes, it, it, it still accords in this situation and even um, what may seem extreme, uh, you know, not necessarily historically, but uh, extreme modern perspective in terms of vaccination mandates is permissible. Well, that's what I said in, in our first episode. You were writing about uh, vaccine law before it was cool, way back in 2018. So that gives you a lot of street cred. Um, getting back to that Indiana case, did the court address the situation where a student does not have a religious or medical exemption, but asked to opt out of the mandatory vaccine and instead you know, get regularly tested or wear a mask? Um, well, the, the situation the court was presented there, uh, actually most of the students who were filing the suit had already obtained a religious exemption. Um, and I think one student had obtained a medical exemption and there were uh, two additional students, one of whom qualified for a religious exemption, but didn't want to apply for one because they did not want to uh, wear the mask and get the testing and one additional student who I believe didn't qualify for any of the exemptions, or at least on, on, the, on the surface of, of their claim, didn't uh, qualify for any of them. Um, 
But these weren't students saying, um, I would rather wear a mask and be tested instead of getting the vaccine. These were students who were saying, I don't want to get the vaccine, but I also don't want to have to comply with this mask wearing and testing requirement as a consequence of not receiving the vaccine. And those were really, you know, the two choices that the, um, that the university system offered. It's, you know, either you have to get a vaccination or you have to get an exemption. And if you get an exemption, then you have mask wearing and testing. Um, so there's, there's no sort of circumstance where you get an exemption, but also don't have to wear a mask or be tested. Um, and that's kind of a change from what we have typically seen with respect to public vaccination mandates. If you think about school children attending school, um, there are vaccination requirements everywhere in the country, measles, mumps, rubella, things like that. And there are exemptions everywhere in the country. Uh, but students who are exempted from vaccination typically are not treated any differently from students who are in fact vaccinated. So they're not required to wear masks and they're not required to be tested and so forth. Um, there are circumstances sort of at the edge of that. For example, if you are attending a school and you have a vaccine exemption and you wanna play on the school basketball team uh, or some other sports team, then you might be required to be vaccinated, might be excluded from participating if you're unvaccinated. Or uh, if there's an actual outbreak of a disease. Um, so we saw this when there were measles outbreaks in 2019. There were students who had exemptions from measles vaccination who were then excluded from the schools while the vaccination, while the, while the epidemic was ongoing. Um, but generally speaking, you know, we don't require people to wear masks and receive testing and take any other measures if they're unvaccinated and they have an exemption from vaccination. Um, the fact that COVID is prevalent now um, kind of changes that. So it's it's an unusual situation. Um, and you know, certainly I think uh, it's within a power of, uh, of the state to say that you know, we are or are not going to impose some kind of requirement, some kind of a masking requirement or something like that for unvaccinated people. Um, again, it's a little bit different for private employers. <clears throat> uh, the accommodation has to sort of you know, be something that is directed towards uh, actually addressing the situation and you know, there are cases, uh, there was a case, Horvathy City of Leander, uh, Texas decided uh, early last year, right before the pandemic broke out, uh, where you had a firefighter who did not want to receive, I think it was an influenza vaccination that was required by their department. And the, the department said, um, we're going to give you two choices, one of which is you wear a respirator and you get tested regularly. And the other of which is you change your, your job within the fire department from, um, being, uh, you know, someone who rides a truck to being someone who does these inspections um, separately and doesn't work with other people and so forth. And the the pay was the same, but the hours were different and 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 were not as uh, suitable to the employee. And the the court in that case held that um, yes, the uh, fire department could impose these restrictions and could give him this choice. And the employee came back and said, well, what if I agree to wear a mask at these certain times when I'm in contact with someone um, who might be vulnerable uh, and I get tested you know, after there's actual exposure and not just you know, tested on a regular basis. Um, and the employer rejected that. And the court says that the, the employer 
didn't have to accept this alternative because the, the accommodations that it offered were reasonable accommodations that you know suited the employer's purpose. Um, and you know that's that's generally been the case with accommodations. What the Indiana University did in terms of requiring masks and testing is more along the lines of what has typically been required of employers who wanted to accommodate um, non-vaccinating employees. Um, so that is something that's actually kind of bleeding out from employer practices to public practices uh, in light of the pandemic. But you know, the cases that have addressed um, these aspects of it have broadly held that yes, both private employers and uh, public entities can mandate vaccination under certain circumstances and can mandate that unvaccinated people um, take these other steps. Now, you know, there's also been a question of whether it uh, kind of calls people out as unvaccinated and exposes them to um, harassment if, well, everyone else is vaccinated and they're not wearing a mask and you are wearing a mask. And the courts have um, sort of pushed that aside and said that, you know, people who are vaccinated, there are some who are still wearing masks and there's no, there's no law that says, an un, that says that a vaccinated person can't wear a mask and therefore requiring you to wear a mask isn't, isn't singling you out because it doesn't demonstrate that you're unvaccinated. Um, whether that itself remains the case in the future, um, whether that you know, sort of accords with, with public behavior is something that may change, um, but for the time being, uh, the courts have generally held that, you know, masking requirements aren't discriminatory, and they're not discriminatory in a sort of religious or, or disability-based uh, basis. Have any of these post-COVID court cases addressed the fact that uh, the vaccine is still under uh, temporary emergency use approval? Yes, both both the Houston Methodist case and the uh, Indiana University case address this. Um, the Houston Methodist case did it uh, fairly curtly um, and abruptly, and you know, really, the the crux of that case was that under Texas law, you know, it's a right to work state, and you can't sue your employer for wrongful termination if they've asked you to do something that is a legal thing to do. You know, it's not illegal to do, um, and it's not illegal to receive a COVID vaccination. So, you know, that was kind of the. The, the key point, but the court also addressed the fact that the vaccine was un, available under an EUA status um, and said that uh, there's nothing in the EUA that prohibits the mandate. Uh, the fact that people have the right to choose not to receive the vaccine, that's part of the language of the EUA is that people have to be informed that they have the right to choose not to be vaccinated. Um, doesn't mean they have the right to be employed by an employer who wants them to be vaccinated. Um, the Plaintiffs in the Houston Methodist case also brought up the Nuremberg Convention, and that seemed to very much irritate the court. The Nuremberg Convention, of course, prohibits experimentation on people against their will. Um, and the court basically said, well, you know, if you don't want to get vaccinated, then you can find another employer who doesn't require it or find another line of work. So we're not imposing that on you. Not, you're not under any circumstance uh, being forced to receive vaccinations. No one's holding you down and putting the needle in your arm. Um, the Indiana University opinion actually addressed the issue at much greater length and uh, pointed out and went to kind of great lengths to discuss this, that 
the FDA initiated this process that has basically been called EUA plus, where um, even though the standard for uh, authorizing the use of a pharmaceutical product under an emergency use authorization is just kind of like a preponderance of evidence standard that it's more likely than not that it's helpful rather than harmful, um, they required a much higher standard and something much closer to what is required for licensure for the COVID vaccines. Um, so, you know, it, they, they have been um, much more rigorously tested than products are legally required to in order to receive the issuance of an emergency use authorization. Um, you know, I have, I have counseled private clients that while this vaccine is still uh, available under an emergency use authorization, it's probably better to use a lighter touch and to promote vaccination, perhaps incentivize vaccination um, and facilitate it in some ways rather than mandating it. Um, but the, the two courts that have addressed this and also the uh, Department of Justice Office of Legal Counsel and the Congressional Research Service have both put out memoranda on this have all sort of concluded that the fact that it's under an EUA is of no moment to the question of whether it can be mandated. Um, and the fact that the FDA did require uh, a far more robust uh, regime of, of testing uh, militates in favor of the ability of uh, employers and public entities to mandate this vaccination. Um, and you know, I, I've also you know, counseled clients on top of that, that the fact of the matter is the licensure process is being accelerated to the greatest degree possible. It is very likely, uh, it's almost certain at this point that at least one of these vaccines, maybe more, will be fully licensed by the end of the year. Um, I think uh, the Biden administration had said something in the past couple of weeks that, that maybe by the end of September, um, that is a quite ambitious uh, deadline for that. I, I don't actually think that uh, we'll have a licensed vaccine by the end of September, but we will um, before the end of the year. And at that point, the EUA question um, goes away. There may be some people who bring legal challenges to whether the licensure has been properly carried out, um, but it's very, very difficult to challenge that, you know, to challenge a, an FDA determination that, that something qualifies for licensure as a pharmaceutical product. Um, and, you know, I would, I would consider it unlikely in the extreme that such a challenge uh, would prevail. And if it did, it would be something that uh, was a matter of, you know, you didn't cross your T's and uh, dot your I's right and go back and do that and come back in a few weeks and, and then you'll have your full licensure. Um, so that, that's the situation that we're, we're headed to. But, you know, as the law stands now, the EUA status of the, of the vaccines um, has not proved to be a legal impediment to vaccination mandates. And we are increasingly seeing those um, both in the public sphere. I think um, the Biden administration announced within the past couple, couple of days, within the past day or two, uh, that they're going to require all federal healthcare workers, all, all healthcare workers uh, working in the federal sphere and federal government and veterans administration and so forth to be vaccinated and uh, maybe expanding that to federal employees in other areas. Um, so, you know, this is, this is sort of a, uh, an inflection point of uh, vaccination mandates being turned up, um, primarily in response to, you know, the Delta variant and the fact that, 
that uh, six months into the existence of vaccines, um, COVID is kind of still out there and, and um, causing a lot of damage. Crystal Ball, do you think that the Pfizer vaccine, the Moderna vaccine, and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine will get full approval? Based on the the degree of testing that each one was required to go through. Now, each of those, we have seen uh, some reports uh, with Johnson Johnson vaccine, for example, the blood clotting um, with the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines of, uh, of some heart-related issues. Um, and generally, you know, what we would see happen in response to that is the FDA will probably just expand the list of contraindications and say, you know, if you have this particular kind of condition or that kind of condition, um, then you're medically contraindicated from receiving this vaccine. But, you know, there, there are all kinds of drugs out there that um, are licensed for use, even though they have um, very substantial contraindications. And in particular, you see, you know, life-saving heart drugs or liver drugs or things like that, uh, where when you see the ad on TV, they have this part where they're required to say all the side effects may include, you know, this, that, and the other thing leading up to, you know, possibly death. Um, but they so look so that, happy. Uh, they're they're usually like in a bathtub staring out a window. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that is, that is the, uh, that is the marketing end of it. Um, but the fact that a pharmaceutical product has uh, potential serious contraindications doesn't prevent one from getting on the market. It just uh, means that the manufacturer of that product has to list those indications and inform you that, you know, okay, now we know that if you're someone in this age group with a potential for a blood clotting issue, then you shouldn't receive this vaccine. Um, but it will still be licensed for everyone else. And uh, Pfizer's already submitted the request for licensure. Um, I don't know where that um, I, I think uh, they may have and just not made a public announcement about it, um, or they they may not have done that yet, and they're waiting to see how things play out further. But Pfizer is is probably on a fairly fast track to getting uh, to getting a full licensure for their vaccine. Okay, so let's now talk about what happens if you unfortunately get injured by the vaccine. It's my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, that um, OSHA came out with a regulation stating that if a company mandates the vaccine, you can actually sue the company directly. But if there is no mandatory vaccine and you're injured by the vaccine, you have to go through some sort of vaccine compensation system. Am I correct so far? Well, generally, the principle is, is that if you have a work-related injury, and it's any kind of work-related injury, um, you go through workers' compensation. Workers' compensation is a system that is set up um, to kind of stand as a buffer between uh, employees and the employers uh, and ensure that employees are, are able to be compensated for injuries um, without necessarily um, going through lengthy litigation process against the employer itself and, and, and costing both parties uh, a tremendous amount in, in going through that process. So what OSHA has said 
is uh, if you're mandated to receive a vaccine by your employer and you're injured by that vaccine, then uh, you'll be entitled to workers' compensation for that injury. Uh, and workers' compensation has generally covered vaccine injuries for decades. Uh, we've seen cases where people have received you know, a flu vaccine or, or even something like a tuberculosis vaccine or a smallpox vaccine back in the old days when, when those were required by employers. Um, and gone through workers' compensation. And there were you know, early cases questioning whether uh, workers' comp could cover a vaccine injury. And those generally came uh, down on the side of, of those injuries being covered. Um, and OSHA has also ruled that this is what's called an OSHA reportable injury. You have to make a, a record of it and, and report that uh, to OSHA at the end of the year. And you give them all your kind of records of people who have been injured on the job. Um, so basically, yes, if it's mandated by the employer, um, then it's going to be covered by workers' compensation. There's actually a split among the states as to whether uh, workers' compensation is available for vaccines that are merely encouraged by the employer or incentivized in some way or provided by the employer. Um, and you know, there, there are even cases saying that where there are state mandates requiring the vaccination, uh, and the employer is just requiring it pursuant to the state mandates. Some states say that an injury uh, following one of those vaccinations is still compensable under workers' compensation uh, because it's for the benefit of the employer. And then some states saying that it's not. Um, so it, it can be rather convoluted and, and it can be very state specific. Um, but if you're talking about a circumstance that is not covered by the employer uh, or that's not covered by workers' compensation, or really even one that is, um, or you're talking about a, a situation where you know it's a state mandated vaccine for a university student or or even someone who's not mandated to receive the vaccine goes and receives the vaccine and has a vaccine related injury. Um, the key thing to know is first of all, uh, for vaccines generally, for the, the childhood vaccines, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, tetanus, um, influenza, meningococcal meningitis all these sorts of vaccines. There's a program that's been set up called the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program that was set up um, in the 1980s that basically insulates the vaccine distributor administrator of the vaccine and someone asserts that they've been injured by the vaccine, you're immune from liability. And there is a compensation program under the auspices of the United States Court of Federal Claims. You file a claim with that program and a special master examines your medical record um, and looks to see whether you did in fact receive a vaccination that was proximate to an injury occurring. Um, there is a vaccine injury table that lists specific injuries um, such as serva, which is a soldier injury uh, from basically improper vaccination technique or anaphylactic reaction or something like that. If you have one of the injuries listed on the table within a time period listed on the table, then your compensation is fairly automatic. If you have an injury that is not one that's listed on the table uh, for a vaccine that is on the table, then you have to go through a process of providing expert witnesses um, and testimony showing that there's some logical correlation um, some reasonable relationship between the vaccination and the injury that you received. And the, the court will decide uh, whether you've proven your case. Uh, and again, it's a preponderance of evidence standard. 
Uh, and if you have, then you'll receive compensation for that. Now, COVID is not on the vaccine injury table. Uh, it's a very new vaccine, first of all, and it's covered under a different program. So in February of 2020, the Trump administration invoked the PREP Act, um, which is this very substantial piece of legislation, the Public Readiness and Emergency Preparedness Act, which triggers a lot of uh, contingencies for a public emergency, um, including a public health emergency. And one of the things that, it, that uh, was done when the PREP Act was triggered was this determination that anything that was a countermeasure against COVID-19, um, including things that were thought to be treatments for the disease or methods of testing the disease and also vaccines, and this was nine months before any vaccine was um, even developed, would be covered by the PREP Act. And therefore, as with the NVICP, uh, the manufacturer, distributor, and administrators of the vaccine are immune from liability. And the immunity is actually somewhat broader than it is under the NVICP. Um, so under the PREP Act, uh, there is a countermeasures injury compensation program, but it's not uh, under the Court of Federal Claims. It's not under any kind of adversarial procedure or uh, judicial procedure. It's literally just filing a paper with a functionary. It's completely bureaucratic. It's like seeking a social security adjustment. You know, you file your claim and it kind of gets stamped either yes or no. Um, and, you know, in the NVICP, if you, if you disagree with the outcome, you can appeal that to the Court of Federal Claims as a whole, and you can appeal that to the uh, Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Uh, whereas under the CICP, there's, you know, if, if you disagree with the outcome, you can basically appeal to the, the manager of whoever the functionary was who stamped it. Um, and there is no level of appeal provided beyond that. Um, so it's kind of a black hole. I've heard from very few people and um, heard of very few people who have successfully sought compensation for an asserted vaccination injury. Tented COVID vaccination is still very new and uh, any claims that would have been put in would be um, fairly recent claims and may still be going through whatever the, the procedure or the process is. Um, but historically, when the H1N1 vaccine um, was covered under the invocation of the PrEP Act for that epidemic and when other uh, vaccines have been uh, covered under invocations for previous public health crises, um, there have been very, very few cases where there has been compensation that has been provided. Um, and I would also mention going back to the workers' comp thing, um, both the NVICP and the CICP, the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, are what are called payers of last resort, meaning if you did get workers' compensation or if you did um, somehow you know, get some other kind of compensation, then they're going to subtract that from whatever you, you get from these programs. And it may well be that uh, what the program decides to give you doesn't even amount to that. So you don't get anything from going through that program if you've gotten some other kind of compensation. You know, I have seen a case or two where someone um, has had a, a vaccine injury claim for an NVICP covered vaccine and they went ahead and sued the doctor, which you're not supposed to be able to do. And the, the doctor's attorney didn't know that you have immunity for that and they settled. And then that person came to the NVICP trying to get more money and 
in VIPC. So no, you already have a settlement. Once you have a settlement, uh, you can't come here anymore. So you know that that's what I, I advise uh, physicians to be aware of. That if someone comes trying to um, sue you for a vaccine injury in the first instance, they can't, and and you shouldn't settle. You should tell them go to the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. Uh, there is a point in that program where if you're unsatisfied with the outcome, you can then go to the civil courts, um, but it's it's almost never done. It's very rarely done because, first of all, uh, we have this case, Bruzevitz v. Wyeth, uh, which was decided in the uh, early two in the, um, 2012, I want to say. Um, Justice Scalia plus six held that the the uh, act immunizing manufacturers from liability uh, under the NVICP um, also immunize them from liability even if you go through the NVICP and are able to go into civil civil court unless there was a defect in their labeling. So if you have a vaccine and there are some potential dangers to your vaccine, you put on the label, here are the potential dangers and someone is injured by the vaccine and that injury is in line with the potential dangers that you've outlined, then you're still immune from liability. Um, in theory, at that point, the doctor or the, the hospital may be um, sued. But, you know, the doctor you'd be suing under malpractice theory and you'd have to show that there was some, some neglect in, in the standard of care. Um, for example, that this was a patient who, who the doctor should have seen had a contraindication of the vaccine and they didn't do that examination. If the doctor conducts a proper examination and finds you to be a suitable candidate for vaccination and you receive the vaccination and then nonetheless have a vaccination injury, um, it's going to be very hard to prove medical malpractice uh, at, at, that, at that juncture, uh, especially if you've gone through the kind of the entire vaccine injury compensation program and they found that you're not uh, eligible for compensation um, which is sort of a finding that the vaccine wasn't responsible for your injury, or that it, it couldn't be it couldn't be connected on a preponderance of evidence standard as being responsible for the injury. So you know, those are the two systems we have out there now. There are some vaccines like the shingles vaccine, or if you were to get a rabies vaccine or an adenovirus vaccine or something like that, that aren't under any of those. Um, so someone who's injured by a shingles vaccine in theory could go through the usual route of directly suing the manufacturer if they assert that it's a defective product or the administrator or so forth. Um, but even those, those suits are very, very rare. You know, they're, they're hard to win because you're going up against big players usually. Yeah, and the theory behind the compensation system is if you go through civil court, um, it takes a lot longer. I mean, theoretically, you, know, you, you think you get a jury trial, you get a larger award. But um, the reason for the compensation system is it's supposed to be a sort of a bargain where it's quicker um, and you get access to the funding rather than litigating for a couple years against a huge corporation, right? In theory, that is the case. In practice, um, NBICP vaccine injury compensation claims have been taking longer and longer uh, to process. You know, it's gone from, from a year at the beginning of the program to several years now. Um, part of that is a function of the sort of constantly increasing number of claims being filed. Um, and, you know, the, the 
the fact that that's happening in the context of, of the number of special masters um, remaining the same while you know, the caseload has gotten larger. Um, there is a proposal that has been um, put on the floor of Congress to put the COVID-19 vaccine and COVID-19 vaccine injuries under the NVICP, and that proposal would also substantially increase the number of special masters and so the resources for handling those cases. Um, but you know, part of the problem is that it's very easy to get continuances, and um, in in a lot of cases because uh, the person claiming the vaccine injury, uh, even with a very low standard of evidence relative to what is required in civil court. Uh, still has to get expert witnesses and still has to show that studies have been done uh, connecting potentially the vaccination with the injury. Um, you know, that may take a tremendous amount of time and, and that may be a process itself that, that drags on for years and years where um, the significance of what various experts have said is debated uh, by the parties before the tribunal. Um, although I will say that in a case where someone has received a vaccine on the vaccine injury table and gotten um, and, and is asserting an injury that is listed on the table within the time frame on the table, and they can show on the face of their medical records, yes, I got this, um, I got this pertussis vaccine, and I had an anaphylactic reaction, and that reaction was within a couple of hours, and my treating physician at the time, when I gave him the shot, said oh, this was a result of your vaccination. Those cases are resolved very quickly. Um, it's just that there are a lot of cases um, where the claimed injury is something that's just not on the table. Um, and sometimes cases where the medical record is not that well uh, maintained, where it's not that apparent on the face of the record. And what about if you're under 18 and have an alleged injury from the vaccine? What's your remedy then? Um, generally speaking, actually, most of the uh, most of the petitioners who come before the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program are parents seeking compensation because you know, their their child received a vaccine, and they're for very small children. You know, and usually uh, childhood vaccines are received in infancy. Um, so there are a substantial number of those cases. Although um, I think about half the docket now is shoulder injury cases. Um, which most frequently come about, come about uh, pursuant to flu vaccination. And that's not actually, uh, there was actually an, an effort by the, the previous administration to remove shoulder injuries from the vaccine injury compensation program because it's not because there's anything wrong with the vaccine. It's because the person administering the vaccine uh, used a faulty technique. Um, so they went through the whole process uh, of, of getting that removed from the table. And then the new administration came in and sort of immediately reversed that. So um, it's still there. And that accounts for, I think, 48% of cases are these shoulder injury claims. Um, and, you know, they're, they're taking up a tremendous amount of, of the, the resources of that body. And in fact, shoulder injury uh, resulting from a vaccination administration um, was only put on the table at, uh, in early 2017 at the end of the Obama administration. So it kind of got put on and then immediately became this huge proportion of the cases. And then it got taken off, but then put right back on. Um, and those are mostly adults making those, those claims. But for the, the half of claims that aren't those, you know, 
primarily you know, there are claims from parents of children uh, receiving the standard childhood vaccines. I want to ask you a question about the Jacobson case. Let's go back to that, the 1905 case where the court fined Mr. Jacobson $5 for not getting the uh, smallpox vaccine. That case is super fascinating. One of the things that intrigued me was the court talked about deferring to the state legislature for these types of decisions. And what we saw during the lockdown was the governor's making all these important decisions. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, every state kind of determines on its own uh, feet how it's going to respond to medical emergencies. Um, and that is generally going to be a matter of, you know, well, what does it say in the state's constitution? And then what does it say in the laws that have previously been passed by the legislature? Uh, and a lot of states, in fact, most states have some kind of a, a system in place where the laws on the books, and these are, you know, the laws are passed by the legislature. Um, the law in the book says that in the case of this emergency, it is this executive official or this executive agency or department that makes these decisions. Um, so that is a matter of delegation of authority. Um, and there are cases really uh, going back well over 100 years on that, that aspect also of saying, well, if the state legislature didn't decide to require vaccination, um, but gave a school board uh, or an education department or a public health department the authority to mandate vaccination, um, you know, is that something within the power of the state legislature to delegate that? And that's generally been upheld as well. Um, it's, you know, it's something that it's usually challenged around the edges of uh, whether the formalities of the process were correctly followed. Um, but generally speaking, legislators, legislatures have an ability and Congress even has an ability um, to delegate a lot of rulemaking, you know, this is the, the distinction between kind of lawmaking and rulemaking. And the, the law says you have these broad powers, and the rulemaking is um, the nuances of how you're going to carry out these powers or how you're going to affect this policy. Um, so that's something that's generally been upheld in practice. Um, and, you know, I think there may be a response to. Uh, the sort of aggressiveness of responses on the part of governors and executive officers and agencies to uh, kind of bring some of that power back into the legislatures. And in, in places where that is just the law on the books that says, okay, we delegate this power to the governor or to the agency, uh, that might be a matter of changing the law to say that, uh, okay, well, this is something that the legislature needs to sign off on on some level or to make the law more specific and you know require um, some additional additional showing of cause um, or some additional reporting of you know the basis of this is why we've come to this decision in order to be able to carry out such enactments um, but yeah that's that's kind of a long-standing thing and it's not it's not new to covid okay last question for you and this might be outside your area of expertise, but I've been pondering this for quite some time, not just with COVID-19, but also with the flu. Have you seen any research in terms of like medications you can take instead of 
getting a flu shot or a uh, COVID-19 shot. I'm always curious as to why the medical experts kind of think vaccine first um, instead of perhaps some sort of magic pill, or am I just too naive? Well, I I think there's a general um, idea in the medical community that we practice preventative medicine. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, if you have a heart attack, you can get heart surgery, um, but that's, you know, not a reason why you should um, partake in a diet that's likely to lead you to have a heart attack and say, okay, well, you know, I know that heart surgery exists and maybe there are medications that can, that can help clear my, uh, my arteries and so forth. Um, so we look at it in terms of, in terms of being preventative and the fact that, you know, there are, you can take Tamiflu for the flu. It supposedly helps out. Uh, monoclonal antibodies have shown great promise in treating uh, severe COVID-19 cases. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's always better to sort of not get sick in the first place and then not require treatment for it. Um, And also, you know, the idea is that if you have a uh, well-vaccinated population, you develop herd immunity, um, you reduce the transmissibility of a disease, you reduce the number of cases and the number of circumstances where um, hospitals are having to deal with these cases and and put their resources into them. and you know, even though uh, the COVID vaccines aren't foolproof in terms of preventing transmissibility, um, there's good reason to think that they reduce it. Um, and, I, and I think there's good reason to think that, that having antibodies from having previously had an actual case of COVID also reduce transmissibility. And you know, the, the entire idea of antibodies is uh, they prime your body to fight the invader so that uh, it is disposed of much more quickly. And of course, you know, the more quickly you uh, get over a disease, the shorter a period of time during which you might be contagious um, and the less of a possibility that you yourself might develop uh, the worst effects of that disease. So you know, vaccination is sort of the front line for that. Um, and you know, there are diseases out there for which no vaccine exists. And we talk about, well, you know, once someone has this, this disease, how do you treat it and what's the treatment for it? If you look at HIV, for example, you know, the focus is entirely on, um, you know, there have, been, there have been decades long efforts to develop an HIV vaccine and the structure of the virus is just so insidious that, that it has not proven possible. Um, and you may, you may know HIV goes after the immune system it's you know one of these these rare viruses that actually attacks your immune cells as opposed to attacking some other kind of cells you know covid the covid virus likes to attack your lung cells the hepatitis virus likes to attack your liver cells um, you know there are particular viruses there where the virus attaches to your skin or to the the lining of your throat or something like that um, but hiv attacks the immune system and it's very hard to develop an immune response to something that's actually attacking the immune system um, so we, we entirely talk about uh, HIV in terms of preventative, not in terms of, sorry, in terms of um, either engaging in conduct that will prevent you from getting the disease, um, or if someone actually develops a disease in this sort of cocktail of medicines that prevents it from presenting its uh, most dangerous aspects. And there are now people who have had HIV for years and years and have taken these medications and, and maintain uh, 
uh, a very low level so that it doesn't affect their life. Um, but you know, I'm sure, I'm sure if you ask any of them, they prefer to have never gotten the disease in the first place. Uh, and you know, I think uh, with both COVID and, and influenza, you know, it would be it would be nice to say, well, I've 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 never gotten the disease, as opposed to saying, well, I got the disease and there was a treatment for it, and so you know, I only threw up for a couple of days before I had to before I, I recovered from it. Um, and that, that may also be the case with the vaccine. There, there are some breakthrough cases. It's a fairly small proportion, but um, basically you can be vaccinated and still get COVID and still have symptoms and your body is reacting to it, um, but you're likely to beat it much more quickly because you have that antibody response. And you know, similarly, you're likely to beat it much more quickly if you have an antibody response engendered from previously having had COVID, um, which some estimates say that you know up to a uh, hundred million people in the population um, may have had uh, some kind of COVID exposure already, may have had an asymptomatic case of COVID, and and had those antibodies. Um, so you know there are there are those routes of protecting yourself from the disease. Um, and I, I generally, um, believe people should have the ability to, to decide for themselves if they do or do not want to be vaccinated for something. Um, you know, certainly schools and employers can say, well, we don't want people who are unvaccinated, but, you know, at the end of the day, if someone just in their private life is saying, look, I'm not working someplace where it's required and I'm not going to school someplace where it's required, I don't want to be vaccinated. Um, you know, people do have that right. Um, but at the same time, uh, it makes sense uh, to be vaccinated, particularly for someone who doesn't have some kind of a health contraindication or something like that. Well said, Professor. You are a walking encyclopedia on this topic, and your students are lucky to have you. Thank you for joining Thank me for this much. podcast today. The information provided in this podcast does not and is not intended to constitute legal advice. Instead, all information, content, and materials available on this podcast are for general informational purposes only. Information in this podcast may not constitute the most up-to-date legal or other information. Listeners of this podcast should contact their attorney to obtain advice with respect to any particular legal matter. No reader or listener to this podcast should act or refrain from acting on the basis of information on this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. Only your individual attorney can provide assurances that the information contained herein and your interpretation of it is applicable or appropriate to your particular situation. Use of and access to this podcast or any of the resources contained within the podcast do not create an attorney-client relationship. The views expressed at or through this podcast are those of the individual author writing in their individual capacities only, not those of their respective employers. All liability with respect to actions taken or not taken based on the contents of this podcast 
are hereby expressly disclaimed. The content on this posting is provided as is. No representations are made that the content is error-free.